have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whether whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat what unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is God's word. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Sam, and I have the privilege of preaching God's Word a lot here. We we go verse by verse through books of the Bible for um, really one simple reason, and that is as we go along in uh, Matthew or whatever book we're going to go through, uh, we're forced to basically deal with whatever comes up. And when you don't go book by book or verse by verse through the Bible, um, then you tend to dance around maybe difficult things, uh, and this allows us to uh, have to dive in. This is not one of the super difficult things, but there will be some as we go through Matthew. Uh, There's a study guide to to take us through um, this study. We basically have been going through Matthew for a long time. There's like five books uh, in terms of how we're breaking it up, and this is the third and so we're going to spend the next several months in really what is Matthew chapter 14 to 20. And we titled this section of those five sections, uh, Revelation of the King. And as the Gospel according to Matthew kind of unfolds in its, in its story, Jesus uh, slowly reveals more and more about Himself, or maybe Matthew reveals more about what Jesus has said about Himself. And he reveals himself in these chapters that we're going to go through as the the true Son of God. Very bold, very direct. Uh, And he reveals his true mission, which is to build his church. Now, these chapters not only reveal, I think, what is the heart of the Gospel that we'll see today for sure, um, a Gospel that saves, a message of, of, of a declaration of what God has done to reconcile us to Himself, it also reveals the hearts of men who foolishly believe that they can save themselves. And I'm not talking about those men out there. I'm talking about us. We 
wrongly believe that we can save ourselves. We may not confess that with our mouths, but I'm convinced, convinced that we actually live that out with our behavior. Sometimes subconsciously. Sometimes very actively and intentionally. Now, Matthew is one of four Gospels in the Bible. And the four Gospels basically tell the story of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. And they tell it from a little bit different perspectives, each one of them. And they don't all share the exact same stories, but they share many. And the Gospel of John, particularly John chapter 6, records uh, what basically just happened in the last couple weeks we preached. So Jesus fed the 5,000, which is a miracle. It could be the only miracle that appears in all... Uh, that's my own daughter. It appears in all four, <laughs> all four Gospels. Um, and so in John 6, we have the recording of the feeding of the 5,000. If you read John 6, you'll see that as the disciples left in boats, right? They come in boats, and they get back in boats, and they leave. Jesus doesn't join them. He kind of goes off by himself. And we heard last week that he eventually joins them by crossing the sea. But the people don't follow the disciples because they never see Jesus get in the boat. Then Jesus disappears. And they're like, where did Jesus go? We better get in the boat. So they get in the boats. And they basically intend to follow Jesus. Not really certain that he's going to be there, but on a search for him. And because Jesus walked across the water and got in the boat, they're over in Capernaum, which is Jesus' hometown. Not where he was born, but where he ended up kind of his central base of operations for his ministry. Here's what happened. It says in John 6, when they found him on the other side of the sea, this is after the walking across the water, after feeding 5,000, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Like, we never saw you get in the boat. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, referring to the feeding, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor or work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. They said to Him, Well, what must we do to be doing the works of God. And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So that exchange, which follows what we've been studying the last couple weeks, really kind of reveals the heart of what I want to share today. These people, unlike, or very much like all of us, desiring to have their physical hunger satisfied. This is what Jesus tells them. You didn't, you're not chasing after me because you're so impressed with the miracle of feeding more than 5,000 people. You just want to be fed again. You're just looking for more food. They're just looking for physical satisfaction. And as a result, Jesus implies that you guys are starving spiritually and you're blind to it. And so when Jesus tells them that they need spiritual food in order to survive eternally, He'll later in John tell them He's the bread of life, and that whole section is perhaps familiar to you. But when He tells them, look, you guys need to pursue spiritual food that's going to last for eternity, what do they say? They ask, what must we do? What must we do? And this is the question that all men tend to ask 
when confronted with their spiritual emptiness? And it's the wrong question. Jesus clearly told them it's not about doing. It's about believing. But as men, they're like, what do I got to do? What do I got to do? I got to do something. I'm going to do. What do I got to do? Just believe. See, everyone feels that what Lewis called the God-shaped emptiness or void in them. It can't be ignored. And some people try to fill it with the gratification of irreligion. And what I mean by that is, quite simply, they avoid God by being really bad. And then there are others, like the Pharisees, that we're going to read about and have read about, who fill that void with the gratification of religion. And what they do is they avoid God by being really good. All of us are in one of those schools. All of us have stories that that follow one of those two paths. All of us are either the prodigal son or the prodigal older brother. Ironically, the Pharisees that we'll talk about today were very zealous for God and His Word. They kind of get a bad rap, and they rightly so in some respects, but I think we wrongly kind of demonized them because they were guys who ultimately did love God's Word, perhaps too much, as we see, or the wrong way. But these guys were more than just scholars. They themselves uh, hung out with the scribes who were probably the true scholars, kind of like the lawyers who knew everything there was to know about the Word of God. But the Pharisees, their intention was to apply the purity that the Old Testament required of the priests to all people. They were pursuing purity. There was a goodness in what they were trying to accomplish. And so to this end, that they were largely responsible for the synagogue movement and the development of the synagogue, which became increasingly important when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, about 40 years after Jesus resurrected. And they created the synagogues in order to have worship outside of Jerusalem. So they could continue to have worship all the time in their daily lives and continue to to study God and, and, and His Word and to celebrate those things. And yes, anything good can go bad, and it did. But their intentions, in many ways, started as a desire to worship God more. And in doing this, the Pharisees didn't actually believe that they were avoiding God by being good. On the contrary, they believed that a lot of these things they started to do were helping them pursue godliness. But what we see with the Pharisees is that you can be godly without God. And I put godly in quotes. You can look godly, you can sound godly, heck, you can even feel godly, and be doing it with a motivation for self-glory. Larry Osborne, who's a pastor down in California, wrote this in a book. He said, I found that becoming a modern-day accidental Pharisee is a lot like eating at Denny's. No one wants to go there. We just end up there. Right? 
It's not like you go, hey, hon, on the next date, we're hitting Denny's, right? But at midnight, when you're hungry for pancakes, there's nowhere else to eat. And so I believe if a Pharisee, if a Pharisee can be godly without God, I wonder if a Christian can be a Christian without Christ. And that's what we're talking about. So, as we look at this text, we see that, that a lot of times this happens unintentionally. And I, again, I'm, I may be giving the benefit of the doubt here, but I'm going to say it happens unintentionally, accidentally, but it does happen. The Pharisees and the scribes, as the text begins, they arrive from Jerusalem, which is quite a distance from where Jesus is staying right now, up northern Sea of Galilee. And they really are sending what probably amounts to an envoy representing a larger group that's in Jerusalem with some authority. And they would have stood out amongst the commoners of this sea town in Galilee. And they probably would have been honored. They would have looked different and they would have known who they were. And so easily identified, they probably would have been invited to spend time with their hometown hero, Jesus. Come eat with Jesus. But you come hang out, they're like, oh, we would love to do that, right? That was their intent. So as they prepare to eat, if you get this picture, they prepare to eat. These guys are already looking for something to be wrong with this ministry because it's gotten popular. This guy's name is being spread about Jerusalem. They're like, mm, I don't know, this might be a bad movement. So as they prepare to eat, they look over at his disciples and they realize that they are not following the traditions of the elders and washing their hands. Now, this is more than just like they're not cleaning up before dinner. Kaylin and I had this experience one. You probably are familiar with uh, the radio um, commentator Michael Medved. And by a weird scenario, we were invited to have a Sabbath meal at his house. Um, and so it was very uh, Jewish. Now, my whole side of my family, my mother and, and all that sense, it's all Jewish. So I have rabbis and all kinds and makes uh, conversations very interesting at times. Um, but, so I was familiar somewhat with this, but as we were preparing for this meal, there was a certain process we had to go through. And one of the processes was a hand washing. And so we had to go into this special place and we had to wash our hands and you had to do it a very particular way. You had to roll your sleeves up and you had to wash each hand individually. You had to towel them off individually. You had to say a blessing at certain times. Then you had to be silent as you came all the way back to the table and you couldn't say a word until the bread had been broken and you actually said a blessing again and then, well, the leader said the blessing and you ate. It was strange, unfamiliar. But what made it even worse is that Michael Medved spilled wine on Kalen in the middle of it, and he didn't say a word, right? He's like, I'm like, seriously? Like, oops, anything? I'm sorry. But it was like they were committed to silence. And I was like, this is kind of strange. But this is what really they're talking about. There's a, a particular purification that takes place. It's very specific. It is still uh, practiced today. may not be exactly the same what they're doing, but very similar. So they look and they say, you guys aren't doing what our elders have always taught. 
So the tradition of the elders that they're referring to is a, is a group of, of oral teaching that really was amount, amounted to kind of commentary on a lot of the laws in the Old Testament. So they would have the Sabbath or, um, or other things, and they'd say, well, this means this, or in order to protect yourself from doing this, you need to do these other things. Those things they added weren't necessarily biblical, but they were in, put in place in order to protect them from breaking truly biblical things. Now the Pharisees took these traditions and slowly they became helpful until they became almost authoritative as Scripture. So their traditions of Scripture were, went hand in hand. And again, as I said, most of these traditions were developed in order to honor Scripture. That's the irony of it. They weren't intended like, hey, let's do this and then you know we can cheat over here. It was intended to, uh, in this case, protect them from uncleanness. Now, according to the law, there were several ways that someone could become ceremonially unclean. Touching dead bodies, touching bodily substances, all kinds of different things. And so they created, before they ate, this practice of washing hands in case any of those things had unintentionally happened or intentionally happened. And so it was to guard them from what would literally make them unclean according to God's law. They added these things as a protection. So the washing of hands was precautionary, though it wasn't biblically commanded. It was a practice that was actually used to defend the Bible. Now, tragically, what's happened with these guys is that their religious practice has become false worship for them. And these guys who are supposed to be kind of Bible defenders have become what amounts to kind of Bible abusers. And so when the Pharisees condemn the disciples, what they're really saying is that at best, these guys lack devotion to their faith. At worst, they are unclean and lacking purity before God. So the charge can be pretty heavy or still kind of critical. So Jesus listens and he responds with a charge of his own. He doesn't really even say anything about the hand washing. He just condemns them and says that basically their love for their own man-made traditions has caused them to break God's commandment. And then he continues to explain what he means by this. Referencing Exodus 20, he starts to talk about another practice they have, another man-made tradition that they have created. And Exodus 20 is where you have the Ten Commandments. And so what he quotes is the Fifth Commandment, to honor your father and mother. And this is a command of what we ought do relative to our parents or our authority figures. He also quotes from Exodus 21, which commands what we ought not do. Namely, we ought not curse our mothers and fathers. So we are to honor our mothers and fathers and we are not to curse them. So this is what he quotes from Old Testament. And Jesus says, you're guilty of breaking both of these because of your man-made tradition. And this is the tradition. Basically, all Jews understood, based on the fifth commandment, as well as Exodus 21, that they had a responsibility to honor their parents. They had a responsibility to support their parents, financially and otherwise. 
Obviously, as they got older, this would become more important. But they also created a special um, kind of claim they could make or blessing that they could do where they would um, take money and declare it as the Lord's money. And so in this case, what they're saying is that these guys, because human nature tends to make us greedy and a little bit selfish, wanting to uphold the law of honoring my parents, yes, we want to do that because that's important, but avoid the cost of it, they made a tradition which really created a loophole to justify their disobedience. And so they declare whatever money that they were required to use to support their parents, any money that may have been gained by me being your kid and I'm supposed to support you, that's going to be an offering to the Lord. Korban was the Hebrew term for it. That's going to be an offering to the Lord which was set apart for the treasury but didn't actually have to be given for the treasury and that bond or that devoted thing could actually be annulled pretty easily. So you're like, well, I was going to give you this money, mom and dad, but I'm going to give this to the church so I just can't support you. But they later could use it if they wanted quite simply. So by declaring their money as an offering, in their minds, they were legally permitted to withhold from their parents and broke God's law. So Jesus basically calls them hypocrites, which in this terminology means pretenders. You guys are fakers. You're pretenders. You're pretending to be all holy. You're pretending to be law-abiding, and you're not. You're unholy lawbreakers. You are as dirty as you claim my disciples are because they didn't wash their hands. And much worse, because they're breaking one of your man-made rules, which, eh, big deal, you're breaking God's law, which is worthy of death. He quotes Isaiah 29.13, where Isaiah in the past had warned similar Jews in Jerusalem hundreds of years earlier, about the danger of false worship, worship to God that's characterized mainly by external rituals. And he condemns the Pharisees because the doctrines of men, as he calls them, have become subordinate, I'm sorry, more important than the doctrines of God, particularly in their worship. Their worship, and if we talk about what worship is, their worship, if it's considered our personal and communal response to God of who He is and what He has done, and that is expressed in, in how we live and in what we do. This is our, our acts of worship, our sacrificial acts of worship. For them, who God is and what He has done and how they live is not based on God's Word, but theirs. And even if they're good words, they're not the words of God. One commentator put it this way, which I think is an interesting way to look at worship because these Pharisees believe they're worshiping. The Word from God is the core of our worship. We often think of worship as what we do toward God, but our text teaches that the fundamental component of worship is teaching from God to us. When we think of worship, we often think in the wrong direction. 
Worship that's rooted and centered on God's Word, not the traditions of men. And it's amazing how many practices as a church and as individuals we have adopted that are very good opinions, very good traditions, but have absolutely nothing to do with God's Word. And thinking that they uphold God's Word, they're actually dishonoring it. As a church, we try to be very thoughtful about what we do, the music that we choose, the practices that we, we... You guys saw how we were going through community. We're doing like seven different ways going, you know why? Trying to honor God's Word. Trying to do the best we could to uphold God's Word. There are lots of traditions that we can choose from. You guys have been to many churches with many different traditions. And the problem is, a lot of our churches have now become founded on those traditions and men's opinions and no longer God's Word. And people go, why do you do that? Well, we've always done that as opposed to this is why. Here's why we do it. And that's what's happened here. Their worship has become about men. What pleases men. What men like. What's easiest for men. Not about God and His Word. So Jesus' judgment on these guys not only calls into question the legitimacy of their accusation, it actually calls into question the legitimacy of their worship altogether. Intending for their traditions to help them honor God. They've dishonored Him and they now are using it to hurt others. The way in which they worshipped became more important than the object of their worship. The way in which they worshipped became more important than the object of their worship. Now there's an undeniable tension between tradition and what I'm going to call traditionalism. We'll try to distinguish these two. One's not bad, and one is completely evil. Not all rules and traditions are evil. Let's get that squared away. The fact that I require my kids to perform the Christmas play before they get presents is glory to God and awesome. And they will do that until they are not living under my roof whether they're 18 or 30, praise God that doesn't happen, but, except for my daughter, she can't date until she's like 45. But, there are traditions that are good. There are traditions that are very meaningful. There are traditions that have been passed down, spiritual practices that are helpful personally and corporately. I think as a church, today's evangelical church, we actually could do much better to learn and respect and honor some of the traditions of the church fathers that have come before us. We tend as a church, I mean today's culture, as an evangelical church, to try and reinvent the wheel every year. And there are some things that need to be recommunicated with every generation, but there are many things in time past that should be maybe practiced and embraced. We don't honor tradition very well as a church. Big C Church. We don't honor the historic Orthodox practices that have enriched the faith of the church very well. We don't even think about them. I think many of these we should celebrate. Many of these we should respect. And there are also some very good fences if we call the the washing of hands a a, a protective measure, there are some good fences that for some of us 
should last for a while. For some of us, we need some protections and some, quote, rules, although that's just like seemed to be a taboo word. There are some good rules sometimes that are good for us for a season. Some of us are good for a lifetime. Even if they're not required for our lives, there are some rules that are helpful for us to grow if we are immature and protect us when we're vulnerable. You just have to be honest enough about your vulnerabilities. And though we never want to elevate man-made traditions into doctrines and above Scripture, we also don't want to deprecate the work of those who came before us. And I think that's the tension that we work on. We can learn and grow and should from historic creeds and, and confessions and even some of the practices of the historic church, most of which, let's be honest, a lot of us are not familiar with. Some of us are. There's a lot of richness there. I think this is not only one way that we can honor our fathers and mothers, it's also a way in which we can protect the purity of our worship at times. We got a really cool worship idea, it might be a really bad one. And sometimes the historic church and the practice of the church are helpful to guide that. There's an interesting proverb in Proverbs 22, verse 28. It says, Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. I think sometimes as a church and as a, quote, young pastor, so interested in blowing down landmarks and fences, you never asked ourselves why they're there in the first place. And before we throw one down, maybe we should ask why it's there and how it's being helpful or why was it helpful and why would it be put there. In their right place, submitted to the Word of God, traditions have great value. One Christian scholar said it this way, Tradition is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Traditionalism is when traditions go bad. When traditions become too important. When traditions become too usurp the authority of God's Word and even begin to compete with it. Where Bible becomes second to traditions. And you begin reading into the Bible to find justification for what you want to do as opposed to reading the Bible to find out what you ought to do. Traditions won't hurt us, but traditionalism will destroy our faith and the faith of others. Now, it's pretty unlikely that we will condemn someone who's not our child for not washing their hands before a meal. It's unlikely we're going to get to the place of purification before meals, but we have our own personal rituals and our own religious practices that we individually and sometimes corporately elevate even passively into doctrines. Living traditions that in very tangible ways serve to hinder our relationship with God and actually hinder our worship, but we hold on to very tightly. Now, not everyone plays this game publicly, but I think nearly everyone plays it privately. But what do I mean? Get yourself into the mind of a Pharisee for a second, which might not be too difficult for most of us. And that's because 
I think that many of us sinfully calculate the godliness of others and ourselves as we watch how they practice their faith. Traditionalism is when I believe that something I'm doing is making me clean and keeping me clean before God and men in addition to what Jesus has done. In essence, what we do is we make these little laws. We may not say them out loud, but we hold them in our minds, and we evaluate everyone and even ourselves according to them. And the only place that can end up is despair or pride, depending on how well we uphold our laws. If I don't do very well, or you don't do very well, I despair or I'm critical. You didn't pray today. That's too bad, I did. Haven't been to church in a while? <laughs> Don't worry about it. The Lord forgives you. Thanks. Right. Or pride about how well I'm doing. I'm clean before God because I went and served this week somewhere. I gave money somewhere. That proves I'm clean. That makes me clean. It's also known as legalism. But that seems like no one wants to call themselves a legalist. So we'll just call ourselves traditionalists. And we might think that that kind of rulemaking, little rulemaking, harmless rulemaking, well, I know it's not God's Word, but I use it to evaluate everyone and my own spirituality. We kind of think that's harmless. Like, it's not that big a deal. They're just little rules. I mean, washing of hands, that's a good thing. No big deal. Paul thought it was really a bad thing. He addressed some false teachers like this in Ephesus when he wrote his first letter to Timothy. Notice what he said. He said, Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared and what do they do? They forbid marriage. They require abstinence from non-GMO organic foods. Just kidding. That was my part. That God created to be received with thanksgiving. Like bacon and stuff that's bad for you, right? You notice what Paul called those little rules? He didn't say, this is really sad. This is unfortunate. This is, you know, not advisable. He said, this is the teaching of demons. People saying you shouldn't eat that. Because that's the teaching of demons. I don't know if it can get much more anti-God than that. This traditionalism, these little things that we hold on too tightly and even put them above God's Word and use them to evaluate our spirituality before God and our spirituality before others and other spirituality before us is dangerous and evil. You think, well, I don't forbid marriage. I don't require hand washings. I don't say, eat as much bacon as you want. I don't care. Consider this. I think sometimes we attach righteousness to rules we make up. Other times we attach righteousness to, to rules that God had that no longer apply. Sometimes we attach righteousness to things like Bible reading and prayer 
theological positions we hold, ministries we support, or service we perform. Sometimes we attach righteousness to very earthly things like clothing. We evaluate whether a pastor should wear jeans or not. Some of you think better of me because I'm wearing my corduroy leather-patched coat. I didn't want to cause you to stumble, so I thought I would look nice today. But if I showed up in a Mickey Mouse t-shirt, you know what you'd think? I won't tell you. But some of you would be like, hmm, that's a little dishonoring. Ask yourself, why do you think that? We attach righteousness oftentimes to little earthly things like that. Clothing, how we school our kids. Oh, your kids in public school? <laughs> Did you know the Lord requires you to raise your children in the way they should go? How are you doing that when they're gone for six and a half hours a day? Have I had that conversation? You bet I have. And what are they thinking about me at that moment? What am I thinking about them at that moment? Books we've read. Food we eat. Sometimes we even attach righteousness to the way in which we do things or the way in which we've always done things. Often evaluating our current experience by our past experiences. See, traditionalism is more than using, in a very good way, some tradition or practice or ritual to enrich your communion with God. That can be a very good and genuine real thing. You journal when you pray? Fantastic. You get on your face when you pray? Awesome. You study your Bible a certain way? You have certain acts of service that you perform and that increases and enriches your communion with God? Awesome. Until you begin to use that as a basis for your union with God. Until you begin to use that as a way to evaluate someone else's communion or union with God. Then it becomes traditionalism and evil. Because you have totally lost the grace of the Gospel at that point. And you've gotten to a place where your work or their work is the reason why they are clean before God. So to be clear, Christianity is this. Christianity is having been accepted by Jesus. We live like Jesus, depending on the Spirit of Jesus, out of a love for Jesus and His glory. Traditionalism or legalism is hoping, I do enough, hoping to be accepted by Jesus. I'll live like Him, depending on myself, out of a love for myself and my own glory. The Gospel and traditionalism. Traditionalism is the very opposite of Christianity. One calls us to do and one calls us to believe. The Gospel calls us to believe what Christ has done. Traditionalism puts all the hope in something that you have done or will do, good or bad. Traditionalism puts your basis for acceptance before God 
on a foundation of the quantity or even the quality of your faith. The gospel puts the basis for your acceptance before God on the quality of Christ's faith, of His work, of what He has done for you. One says do, one says believe, and they are very different. Traditions, whether they are rules or practices, as I said, they're not inherently evil. It's our disposition towards these good traditions that condemn us. It's how we perceive them. Making the traditions of men, even good ones, into what are doctrines of God never produce godly men and women that are loving and joyful. You know what it produces? Pharisees. Pharisees that are very sad and unloving. Like the Pharisees, traditionalists become very self-critical, fearful all the time, uncertain of their acceptance, worried, anxious, very critical, beating themselves up every time they screw up, praising themselves every time they don't. They also become very hypercritical of others. Looking out, because they're critical of themselves, they're already not comfortable with their standing before God, so they're not comfortable with anyone else's. That's why the Pharisees are constantly criticizing Jesus for not following the Sabbath as the traditions say. Or washing the hands as their traditions say. But we know Jesus never broke God's law. Not a single part of it. They also become very hypocritical, which is pretenders before God and before men. They got the look. It's like the guy, the athlete, you know what I'm talking about, buys all the gear. He's got the shoes, he's got the shorts, the pants, sweatbands, you know, the Facebook post to prove that, you know, I got my running suit on, but they're not an athlete at all. They just got the gear and the stuff. The traditionalist, the legalist, spends most of his time avoiding life, not living it. The traditionalist spends most of his time working for God and not enjoying Him. The traditionalist spends most of his time looking out to the world to condemn it and feel superior to it, or looking out and feeling inferior to it, as opposed to looking out, feeling compassion for those who need Jesus and love for those who have them that are different than them. It's always comparison. It's always competitive. Which is very despairing. Mostly, this is how the traditionalist lives. Always wondering, am I clean enough? Am I clean enough? That's a scary place to live. That's a sad place to live. That's a horrible place to live. That's not where Jesus wants us to live. If you're cleanliness before God is based off you, yeah, good luck. Good luck. More than likely, you got dirty on the way to church today, spiritually speaking. I don't want to live in fear of always wondering, am I clean enough to be loved? I want to live in the confidence that Jesus is perfectly clean and gives me His life. See, we wrongly believe that we can clean ourselves by doing. 
And we wrongly believe that because we think that the problem is external from us. This is the difference between sins and sin. When you come to the place where you realize that you have an internal problem, then the external becomes somewhat meaningless. At least powerless. There's a lot of confusion about sin because the church doesn't talk about it very much anymore. It's easy to talk about sins out there or over there or the sins that are being committed or even the sins that I've committed. But sin is not something bad that comes from without. It is something bad that comes from within. You probably read, because it went viral, the comment about the recent events in Ferguson, Ferguson shooting from the NFL player. And I'd like to read them to you because I think they're very interesting. His name is Benjamin Watson. And with all the commentators talking about all the problems, you know, this is why we have racism. This is why we have violence. It's the guns. It's the music. It's the history. It's all these things, right? This African-American NFL football player said it this way. This is part of a longer post, but I'll read the end of it. He says, I'm encouraged because ultimately the problem is not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. Sin is the reason we rebel against authority. Sin is the reason we abuse authority. Sin is the reason we are racist and prejudiced and lie to cover our own. Sin is the reason we riot and loot and burn. But I'm encouraged because God has provided a solution for sin through His Son Jesus. And with it, a transformed heart and mind. One that's capable of looking past the outward and seeing what is truly important inside every human being. Pretty bold. What a stud. What a stud. God loves Jesus and He is using His platform to preach a gospel that I'll probably ever, better than I'll ever be able to preach. See, Jesus reveals in this passage as He's explaining to Peter who, honestly, Peter usually represents most of the disciples and He really represents us, like, just doesn't get it. But He has the courage to ask. That's what I love about Peter. Most of us would be like, Oh yeah, of course, you know, stuff goes in, it just kind of comes out. Sure, oh, I understand that, right? Peter's like, okay, tell me again, how's this work? I love Peter, because he's honest. I'm usually dishonest, like, people mention, like, titles. He've read this book. Oh yeah, I've heard of that, read that book, right? (laughs) Why do we lie? Think about that. Why do we lie like that? It's a lie. Why do we lie? Because we want that other person to think better. I don't want you to think I'm dirty, that I may not be good enough. Peter's like, well, I don't get it, Jesus. That's why Jesus is always like, okay, I'm going to die on the cross. What do, you, what? what do you mean not die on the cross? Come on. You're going to deny me, Peter. I'm not going to deny you. But all the time. And he says, I don't get it. And Jesus says, look, it's very simple. You're dirty on the inside. The problem is not what comes out of the world and makes people dirty. The problem is what comes out of the heart makes the world dirty. Our hearts are not made dark by the world. Our hearts are not made dark by the world. The darkness of our hearts makes the world dark. Like that's sin. It can take 
good things like the washing of hands to make sure that you honor God's Word. That's not a bad thing. It can take that good thing and create it into a bad thing. Like, I think it's Keller who says, it's not that we desire bad things, it's that we desire good things too badly. That's sin. But Jesus says, ironically, what's in the heart is revealed by what comes out of the mouth. And who are the only ones really talking in this passage? Pharisees who are saying a lot of stuff with their words. And what's coming out of the mouth are two things. One, revelation that they are dirty on the inside. And the second is they are making dirty the disciples and everyone else around them by ruining their faith and telling them they're not good enough. No one, catch this, no one can fix their internal brokenness with external things. No one can fix their internal brokenness with good external things. We cannot be made clean by our own efforts. Period. Quite the contrary. This is the super irony of it all. Your efforts to make yourself clean just make yourself dirtier. Isn't that crazy? And no one can fix their internal brokenness by avoiding bad external things. Doesn't mean you shouldn't put fences up. Doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue, but it means ultimately you can't make yourself clean by just avoiding bad things. No dirt from the outside can make you dirty on the inside, but the dirt on the inside can certainly make anything dirty on the outside. So if we're honest, and most of us really aren't, we don't believe that. There are many of us here, including myself, who at times wrongly believe that God loves us because of our good work. And that He doesn't love them because they're not good enough. And there are many of us who wrongly believe that God doesn't love us because of my lack of good work. You need the Gospel. You need the Gospel of grace because you sound like a Pharisee in denial. An accidental traditionalist. So in conclusion, how do you escape this trap of traditionalism? Very simple. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. We're all hypocrites trying to pretend we're clean. We just do it at different levels and in different ways. Refusing to admit we're dirty, this is what 1 John says, right? In John chapter 1, don't try to tell me you don't have sin. Refusing to admit we're dirty, you know what we do? We we do all we can to justify our sin or hide our sin or minimize our sin or redefine our sin or worse, try to do good things to remove our sin. In doing so, we only reveal that I don't actually believe God loves me in my dirtiness or anyone else. So I would compel you and plead with you, don't pretend Confess and repent and believe. What does 1 John 1 9 say? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A passage that's written to believers. 
But how do I know if I've been made clean? How do I know if I really believe this? Ready? Here you go. Here's your test. Here's your way to know, do I need to repent? Because we hear repent, we always think of like, well, that really bad person over there needs to repent. No. The first of the theses that Martin Luther wrote was that we have a lifetime of repentance. That's what life is. But how do I know if I need to repent? Let me ask you two questions. Very simple test. How would you describe your relationship with God right now? What's the condition of your relationship with the Lord? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it close? Is it distant? Is it healthy? Is it unhealthy? Right? People ask you, how's your walk? What do you say? I'm a little bow-legged and I walk kind of crooked. Like, what do you, what do they, what do you feel? What do you say? Maybe better asked, what do you, what do you feel? What do you, what do you think of when you think of Jesus' face? What's he look like? Happy, sad, disappointed, frustrated, irritated? Is that what, when Jesus is looking at you, is that what you see? And the second question, having considered your relationship with God, what reason would you give for its condition? Whether it's good or bad. And if your mind is drawn to yourself, if when you think about the condition or the status of your relationship with God, if your mind is drawn naturally to the bad things I've done or the good things I'm doing, you need to repent. Because your mind should be driven to the cross. When I think of my relationship with God, I should think, oh Jesus. It is through Your work that I am saved. Any bad that I have committed, I lay at the cross and receive forgiveness because You died for it knowing it. And any good that is coming out of me is Jesus coming out of me. If when you think of your relationship with God, you find your mind being drawn to your work, your good, your bad, your achievements, your failures, you do not believe the Gospel. And you need to embrace the fact that Jesus Christ did it all. It is finished. His work, not yours. Believe, confess that you're a dirty, rotten Pharisee, and be saved. It's simple. And yet so difficult. Jesus became dirty and defiled so you could be clean. Period. He tried to help the Pharisees understand that God does not look at their hands to see if they're clean or unclean. He looks at their hearts. Something that we can't clean. I can clean my hands. I can't clean my heart. These are the things that separate us from Him. And you don't have to remain in your dirt. You don't have to be defined by your dirt. You don't have to be defined by what is true uncleanliness that we all have. Jesus is not a better Pharisee with a better set of traditions. Jesus doesn't give us a better life. He gives us an entirely new one that is perfect. God sent His Son Jesus to help us and He did live a life that was pure and clean and perfect. And He never sinned at all. Not in word, not in thought, not in deed. And when He died on the cross, He died for all of the dirty, wrong sins that you have done. And will do. 
And three days later, he came back to life. Some of us need to hear the gospel and be reminded of the crucifixion because you think, I'm not that bad. No, you're so bad, the Son of God had to die to cover up your dirt. Some of us know that. And we're despairing in that. You need to hear the resurrection. It's dead and buried, gone. Christ has given you new life. He's given you cleanliness. He's given you purity. Stop depending upon yourself and just... Believe. Believe that He has done it all. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank You for the grace that You have given to us. Lord, forgive us for believing that we can do anything worthy of being clean. Lord, we are dirtier than we will ever admit. More evil than we'll ever know. Darker than we can see. And yet we are loved and made clean through faith in Jesus' work. More clean than we could ever imagine. Father, for the traditions that we hold, I pray that You will help us, Father, to honor those traditions that are valuable, that enrich our communion with You. Those things that we do, Father, that, that bring us closer to You in a very real way. But never, Father, let them become the basis for our union with You. The basis for our acceptance before You. That's not what they are. If our traditions do not drive us to the cross, Father, destroy them and remove them. Remind us of the new hearts we have in Christ. That we don't need anything else but faith in Jesus. It is in His name we pray. Amen. Chelsea here? Well, there she is. All right, Chelsea, come on up. We have the honor and privilege of witnessing, you have the honor and privileges of witnessing a baptism of one of Jesus' kids. Chelsea has been with us for a little bit, and uh, she came a couple weeks ago and said, you know what, I need to get baptized. And so, I wanted to remind everyone what baptism is as we baptize her and then connect this with communion. Because communion is the reminder of this. Every Sunday, we are being reminded of a couple things. Our identity with Jesus was it's really like a public funeral for Chelsea 1.0. She's going to go down to the water and you're going to really see what has already happened in her heart that the old Chelsea has died, is gone, and the new Chelsea has risen in Christ. And through the baptism of the Father, right? If you were at the Soma training, I thought Jeff did an excellent job explaining the meaningfulness of baptism and saying, when you are baptized in the name of the Father, you are baptized into a family. You have a new heritage, a new family that you are a part of. This isn't the little C church, it's the big C church, it is God's family. And when you're baptized in the name of the Son, you are recognizing or declaring that you have the mind of Christ now where you are a servant to others. You consider others as more important than yourselves, Philippians 2 shows us. And when you are baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, you are given power to have and live out the mission He's called us to, which is basically we are to honor and glorify God with whatever amount of breaths He gives us. So I'm going to baptize Chelsea in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. So he may ask her one question. 
and then we're going to sing and celebrate, and we will take communion after that. And communion basically is the remembrance of your own baptism. It's reminding your own identity. It's reminding of your own family name, of your own reality that you are a servant on mission for His glory. That's why we take communion every Sunday. Okay? Get in that water, girls. Do this. It's cold. Yeah, I know. You're going to want to sit. Okay, ready? You're gonna, there you go. Yeah, you're going to want to sit down. Put your legs there. Yeah, it's going to be cold. Don't worry. Jesus suffered on the cross worse than this. All right. You're going to pinch your nose like that. Hopefully I don't get electrocuted. Chelsea, do you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead to give you new life? By virtue of your confession, I baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You got it? Stand if you would. I'm going to pray for our communion. Father God, we thank You for the joy of being to celebrate and see one of Your children identify with Your Son publicly and boldly. It is a reminder, Lord, that You are continuing to save people. A reminder that this planet is not our home. That we are just ambassadors here to proclaim Your Word further. So I pray as we take communion and we take of the cup and we take of the bread, which is reminding us of Jesus dying for us, we'll also remember that Jesus risen for us, that we have a life to live to Your glory and for our joy. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.